Another pot of coffee is brewing. My fifth cup is almost finished. So that means it's time for another episode of Not Before Coffee. I'm your host, Ray, self-confessed bookworm, film addict, hermit, long-term depression sufferer, and very honest caffeine fiend. It seems like only a few days ago I released my last episode, probably because it was, so I hope that you don't see this one and not realise that Just Friends is a newborn waiting to be listened to. Today's episode is a mixed bag, sort of like my brain I guess, so there's nothing really new there. (laughs) Welcome! Due to the really short gap between posting Just Friends and this episode, I didn't really have time to post any proper clues, but I did post an image as well as putting a clue in the last episode itself. Of course, not enough time has really passed for people to give me their guesses, but I will be talking about the 1995 film Empire Records. I'm also going to be looking at a brand new book by an author I haven't previously encountered, and Just last week I was talking about how I wanted to read books by new authors and I am trying to live up to that particular personal challenge. I think I might have succeeded with this one. The book in question is The Girl's Guide to the Apocalypse, but there will be more on that later. Of course, it wouldn't be a week in the coffee household if I didn't talk about what's been happening in my mental health world and how I've been coping with things. However, this time it's going to take a a bit of a different slant. And I will be talking about the shows that I'm going to be adding to my watch list for the week. I didn't have a long, weird dream that I remember. Yet again, it seems to be a bit of a pattern at the moment. Anyone who suffers with pernicious anemia will be familiar with the pre-B12 injection feeling. Lack of sleep, difficulty catching your breath when doing the least energetic things. Though I still did go on a 4k walk on Sunday. Go me! Yay! However, just like last week and my dream of a beautiful apartment that didn't come true, I am still looking. This week, Amber Heard was in my dreams. Goodness knows what's going on there. I think that they were likely influenced by a set of videos I watched on YouTube featuring the body language guy. Anyway... It turns out I was in court representing Amber because she had been found guilty of being a liar. Now, remember, I was representing her and I did a really bad job because she lost. In the end, I did say it was a brief dream and really random. And it was. Believe it or not, before this weekend, I had never seen Empire Records. I was the target audience age group when it came out in 1995, being just 21. I was supposedly experiencing the same things as these characters were, but it was just not a film that said, watch me. Years later, when it came out on DVD, I didn't rent it or buy it. And despite it having been on streaming services for absolutely ages, and anyone who's got Amazon or Netflix can attest to this, I never had the urge to click play. We'll get into the whys and wherefores of all of this later, but right now I'm going to be looking at Empire Records, which was a suggestion from the amazing Lorraine, host of Once Upon a Nightmare, because apparently this is one of her favourites. I would say I'd 
better temper what I say about this film, or the fans will come for me. (laughs) But if you've heard my TV show countdown episode, you'll know I call it like I see it, and this is all personal opinion, so please don't take offence if I say something about your favourite film that you don't like. Lucas, who is played by Rory Cochran, I recognise him from CSI Miami, but I have already made known my love of American procedurals, has been tasked for the very first time with closing up the record store. His responsibilities are to count the cash, lock up and follow the manager Joe's three rules. Don't smoke any cigars, don't touch my drumsticks, don't drink my beer. Remember those because Lucas doesn't. So far, so good. He counts the money, just over $9,000, and tallies the receipts. And then, with the money still out, goes to answer the door. A late-night customer who couldn't get to the shop before midnight wants to buy a record. She is attractive, clearly catching Lucas's eye, and starts to tell him about her tow-truck-driving husband and how he doesn't understand her. Oh, woe is me. When I first watched this scene, I wondered if she was meant to be a distraction so someone could come and steal the day's takings. But no, it's just a pointless interlude that serves absolutely no purpose at all. We cut back to Lucas after the lonely wife has gone home and he's closed the store up again. Did she actually even buy anything? He's in Joe's office, smoking a cigar, playing the drums and drinking a beer. The money is still on the desk and Lucas is ignoring the three pretty simple rules. He decides to do a bit of a search through the office and finds a letter revealing information that Joe has been hiding from everyone. Empire Records, an independent store since 1959, is being sold to Music Town, part of a chain of record stores with no soul. Lucas is horrified and makes probably the stupidest decision a person could make. He takes the day's takings and rides to Atlantic City. Now, I have to be honest, I don't gamble at all, I don't even do the lottery, and I've never even bet on the Grand National, which is apparently a rite of passage, according to my mum, but I only know the game craps from the Nicolas Cage film Snake Eyes. But Lucas seems confident. Within moments at the craps table, he's thrown a seven and doubled his money. But then, after giving the sort of speech that sounds totally douchey, telling everyone at the table that he's doing what he has done to strike a blow at the evil heart of capitalism. Oh my god. He takes a second throw and gets a double one. Snake eyes. He loses everything. The next morning, AJ, played by Johnny Whitworth, who is probably known by comic book movie fans as Blackout in Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance, and Mark, played by Ethan Embry, who is in this film credited as Ethan Randall, and I love him in Grace and Frankie. Well, they're two of Lucas's co-workers and they arrive at Empire Records to start their shift. They find Lucas sleeping outside the store on his bike. He tells them both that he went to Atlantic City the night before and he didn't win. He then rides off. Oh my God, seriously, this guy is so full of overdramatic moves and this one is yet another. The, it, the film is peppered with them. Anyway, AJ knows that this is bad and tells Mark that A, Lucas has no money and B, he closed up the store the night before. Clearly, AJ is far more aware than Mark who is so out of it already and he knows exactly what this means. While they're discussing what happened, Joe, the manager of the store, arrives. He's played by Anthony LaPaglia. 
He unlocks everything and then asks Mark to answer the phone. It's the bank. Another line rings and it's the store owner, Mitchell Beck. And he, we will get to see and know a little bit later on. It seems that Mitchell is furious because the takings from the previous night haven't yet been credited to the store account at the bank. Clearly concerned, Joe heads to his office. Perhaps Lucas didn't pay them in and instead locked it all in the safe overnight. But no, when he gets there, the safe is completely empty. While all of this is going on at the store, Gina, played by Renee Zellweger, and Corey, who is played by Liv Tyler, are on their way to do their shifts. Corey is super excited about the day because her idol, 80s pop heartthrob Rex Manning, is due at Empire Records to spend the afternoon signing autographs for his fans. Corey has plans for Rex Manning, in the way that many teenagers do when they talk about their crushes. She wants to lose her virginity to him because she is in love with him. Oh, the days when I was that naive. I had a crush on Jonathan from New Kids on the Block. That was a crush that would never come to fruition, even if I did meet them. It's very obvious that out of the two girls, Gina is the one who is more experienced and worldly wise, and she's obviously the older of the two as well, with Corey being only 17. AJ is nervous. He's in love with Corey and has been for a while, but he has no idea how to tell her. While Joe is stressing about the money, the stolen money, and searching everywhere in the office to try and get an idea of what happened to it or where Lucas is, he is not the best person to give advice about love or relationships or anything else for that matter. But AJ still asks because Joe is the only adult in his life that he feels comfortable talking to. When the two girls arrive at the store, AJ is waiting outside for them. He really wants to talk to them about what happened with Lucas and the money so that they're aware when they start their shifts and know not to say anything. However, they're not paying any attention to him at all. He is talking to them while they are talking to each other and calling hi to their other colleagues and just generally flitting around as people do before they start work. Even if they like their jobs, they tend to do things to distract themselves and that's what they're doing. Eventually, AJ loses his cool a little bit and tells them he has to tell them about Lucas. All the while, Joe is trying to contact his wayward assistant manager, who isn't answering his phone and is nowhere to be found. And then we get a prerequisite montage to the song Seems by Queen Sarah Saturday as the staff get the store ready for opening cleaning up a few things, getting the tills ready, and tidying themselves up for the day. I don't know why, but when I got to this point of the film, I think the music so far has gone over my head when it's supposed to be the music that makes this film. I had never heard this song before, never heard quite a lot of the songs before, or of the bands for that matter, but they clearly took a lot of time and care over selecting songs for the soundtrack. In fact, they even changed distribution companies for the soundtrack album due to their desire for Gin Blossoms and some of their songs in the film. Jo sees that Corey is at the store and asks her why she's there when she doesn't start her shift until the afternoon. She tells him that it's Rex Manning Day in a way that makes me want to throw something, as though that explains everything. And then I was treated as the audience of the film to a very 80s looking video for Rex Manning's biggest hit, Say No More, Mon Amour. With the puffy shirts and multitudes of girls on the beach, this video was part Glenn Medeiros 
and part Kylie and Jason. The store is open, but there are very few customers when Corey's younger sister arrives. She's breathless and waving a letter from Harvard around in her hand. Corey has got in, so she has double reason to celebrate. She gets to see her idol, Rex Manning, and she got into Harvard, which is a fantastic achievement. I know which, personally, I would be more looking forward to. Mark, who until this point has just been a chuckler, he's high constantly, and it's really annoying, goes to see Joe because the sign they have on the roof of the building has gone dead. However, when Joe invites him further into the office, he's nervous, and rightfully so. Mark is not very good at keeping secrets. Within moments, Joe is on the shop floor telling AJ that Mark is taking over the tills and AJ needs to go and find Lucas immediately. However, it doesn't seem that AJ will have to go very far because Lucas is already in the building. He's been watching everything play out, having entered the store via the roof. Seriously, is this place all at all secure? I mean, getting in via the roof, there are so many doors. Did Lucas lock anything up the night before? Having made his presence known, Lucas waxes poetic for a few moments about the quandaries of life. I'm going to insert my personal observations here because seriously, at this point, I just want to punch Lucas in his smug little face. He thinks he's edgy and different in his black high-necked shirt and his leathers with his awful haircut. But he's not. He's a selfish and stupid dick who has zero awareness of reality and doesn't seem to want to pay attention to what's going on around him and it's the rant because seriously he annoyed me finally they're playing a song i recognize it's not one i like exactly but one i do know the words to romeo and juliet by dire straits it's playing while the general daily happenings are taking place serving customers people listening to music and Corey getting a bouquet from her proud father she sees the bouquet and his message is him putting more pressure on her to do even better In her mind, he's never happy. I have to be honest here, I remember feeling this way when I was doing my exams, like nothing I did was good enough, but then I was trying really, really hard to please my mum, who never seemed to be pleased with anything I'd done, and please myself because I really wanted to do better. There is something clearly very wrong with Mark, but I have no idea what it is. It could just be all the marijuana he smokes and eats, or it could be something else entirely, because we never get to see his pers- the personality underneath the high. He is probably the least rounded of all the characters. Even people who are barely in the film for 10 minutes seem to have a more clear character than he does, which is a shame, because there is potential there to reveal poten- maybe the sadness underneath. Deborah arrives. She's the last one to get in for the day, and she's angry at the world, at life, and at everything else. Played by Robin Tunney, who always makes me think of the craft, kind of understandably, the other staff seem to think of her as grouchy, but there is something underneath all of that. Tunney's general demeanour in everything I've seen her in sort of gives her a coating of pain, right down to her voice, which constantly has that kind of crack in it. I don't know why, but at this point I suddenly started thinking... I am confused as to who the main character is in this film. Who am I meant to identify with or feel something for? So far, they're not all exactly the most likeable of people. But now we have to go back to Lucas. 
Is he dumb? Is he intentionally playing stupid? He seemingly has zero comprehension of the implications of his actions. Joe is holding off on reporting the theft in an effort to understand what Lucas was thinking and also to see if there is a way to rectify the issue before it reaches the point where there is an actual arrest because there has to be someone held accountable. Over coffee, Gina is helping Corey to prepare to seduce Rex Manning, including loaning her a favourite red bra. As a woman, I don't know if I could ever borrow a bra from a friend because, especially with underwire, they seem to mould to your body shape after a while. And if it's your favourite, that implies that you wear it quite a lot. So wouldn't the underwire change shape? In the staff bathroom, a clearly depressed Deborah is studying her reflection in the mirror, even as she starts to hack at her hair with a pair of scissors that would make Bradmondo cry. Not craft scissors, please, not craft scissors. She then shaves her head completely. I have to say, I'm a little confused as to why she did this at work rather than doing it at home. But by this point, I have kind of given up on understanding most of the motivation of the things that happen in this film. For some reason, AJ is gluing quarters to the floor. See note above. And this is something that we are shown several times throughout the film as though it has some significance but I am unsure as to what that significance is and don't think we actually ever find out. Despite having done some really weird things and looking like he's a reject from a boy band, AJ is probably the only character in this film that I actually like in any way whatsoever. He's the one who notices there's something wrong with Deborah and he's probably the least selfish of all of them. While on the shop floor, Mark is playing at turning the entire place into a mosh pit to the sound of, I shot the devil by suicidal tendencies. And seriously, I was 21 when this came out and I don't remember most of these songs. The songs that I remember came out in the 80s. Lucas has, for the first time, followed the instructions he was given, which were not to move off the sofa in the staff room. However, he's taking it to extremes as he needs the bathroom and is calling for Joe's attention so he can go. At the same time, Joe is trying to save Lucas's and his own bacon by applying for a loan to get the money back that Lucas stole. Seriously, Lucas has done nothing to earn this kind of loyalty, like, at all. Unfortunately for Joe, it seems that he is fighting a losing battle, and when he reaches the bottom, he picks up a box and starts to hand out flyers and aprons in a rather garish orange to the staff. These are the guidelines that they will have to follow when they become a part of Music Town. It turns out that when Lucas stole the $9,000 from the office, he made it impossible for Joe to follow through with his own plans for saving Empire Records, something he has been saving for. The time has come for Rex Manning Day. The staff start working to get everything ready, including life-size cardboard cutouts, a large banner welcoming him to the store, and a table for him to sit at to sign autographs. While this is going on, we're treated to another blast from the past in the form of Video Killed the Radio Star by The Buggles. Interesting fact, you probably know, but this was the first and one millionth video ever played on MTV. Most of the people lining up to get Manning's autograph are much older. It makes you wonder when in the 80s this song came out and he was popular as the film was only based in 1995. 
I was a huge fan of 80s bands and singers in the 80s. And in 1995, I was only 21. So where are all the people that are in their 20s? Because you'd have been in your 20s if you were born in the 70s. It makes no sense to me at all. It's almost like they're making a point, oh, he's old, therefore all his fans are. Doesn't work that way. Look at the stuff now, bearing in mind the 80s was 30 years ago. Now you're going to get women in their 40s. Lucas is still in the break room and he's trying really hard not to break Joe's rules and make the manager even madder than he already is. While trying to stay on the sofa, he manages a few pretty impressive moves to maintain his balance, all the while keeping at least one foot on the sofa. But he's curious and really wants to know what's going on on the shop floor, what's being done to prepare for their special guest, and eventually the curiosity grows too much for him. He grabs a cushion from the sofa, so technically he's still on it, and leaves. While he's talking to Mark, who definitely is struggling to focus, he notices that one of the people in the store is actually stealing CDs and shoving them in his coat of many pockets. We'll see what I did there. He's not exactly discerning in his choices either, a fact that Lucas actually points out to him when they have a very brief conversation. Realising that he's been made, the shoplifter runs, with Lucas not far behind. And we get a car chase on foot, which is more slapstick than anything else, including, as it does, moments when Lucas is hiding in a car. Did he break into that too? And the shoplifter is eventually caught and taken back to the record store so they can call the police. While the thief is there, he gets to hear a lot of interesting information about the shop, including the fact that Joe hasn't reported one of his staff for stealing from the business. And this fact is important later. While AJ, Lucas and Joe are questioning the shoplifter, who tells everyone his name is Warren Beatty, Gina shows off the new Music Town uniform in a way that is apparently classic Gina. She's stripped down to her knickers and is wearing the orange apron as a dress. Seriously, I wish I had her figure at 21. I wish I had her figure now. Of course, Warren gets a kick out of it and everyone else is laughing and dancing when Rex Manning played by Maxwell Caulfield, who you might remember from Greece too, or perhaps the original 1980s dynasty, and his assistant Jane, who is played by the incredible Debbie Mazar. Rex is clearly stuck in his heyday. He is wearing a suit that belongs in a dustbin, and his skin is so orange that it looks as though he's overdone it with beta-carotene or something. He is a cartoon in human form, seriously. He's also a diva, unhappy with the chair he's given and putting a fake smile on for all his fans. He's got a new record to promote and that's the only reason he's doing these meet and greets. While Rex is out front with Mark signing autographs, Jane and Joe are in his office talking. He tells her all about his dreams and how life is short and for a moment it looks as though they're having a moment and they've got chemistry and it could go somewhere. But then he says something that rings true with Jane and she tells him that she quits. By that, she means she's quitting her job with Rex and going travelling. Well, that was quick. Just when you think that everything is going to go smoothly, the owner of the store, Mitchell, arrives. He's in a suit and very clearly fits in at Empire Records about as well as I would. In other words, not 
at all. <laughs> Seriously, I wouldn't fit in here. Even at 21, I wouldn't have fitted in here. It turns out he's come to pick up the money to deposit in the bank, as obviously Joe hasn't done it yet, and he wants to make sure that it is done. I mean, nine grand is a lot for anything, especially for a day's takings. In a record store. Of course, there is no money, so after losing the argument to pay it in himself at the end of the day, Joe gives Mitchell a bag that is full of different coloured flyers. What exactly is he banking on there that Mitchell is going to take it to the bank and not pay it in? Because they're going to count it when it gets there. Surely he's going to have realised. On the roof, AJ is still practising how to tell Corey he's in love with her. Deborah is hiding away, needing some space. And Corey has her own plans, which are about to come a bit of a cropper. Well, possibly. Having discovered that Burko, another member of the Empire Records team, is going to be taking Rex's lunch, Corey goes to confront Joe, and wow, she's intense. I mean, seriously, intense. When you figure out what's what's been going on with her later on in the film you understand where all this anger this immediate anger comes from but at this point it's out of nowhere she starts nicely when she tells joe that she wants to take rex his lunch and joe tells him no burko's doing it and he continually repeats no burko's doing it and then she gets louder until she is outright yelling at him and she's terrifying Joe, seriously, you've got the patience of a saint, mate, because I wouldn't. Seriously, if someone stole from me and then another member of staff showed me the disrespect that Corey does, I would be questioning my interview process. So Corey gets her way, and while she's with Rex, she does her best to seduce him. I'm not sure if, at this point, he senses that this is not something she's ready for, or if he's just trying to see how far he can push things with his fame but he actually scares her away. Disappointed, Corey goes up onto the roof where AJ already is and has been for a while, and he tells her that he's in love with her. She tells him that she's not ready or in the right place to hear that sort of stuff right now, and runs away, leaving AJ up there alone to contemplate what he's done and why it wasn't the right time. How was he to know? In his defence... Rex's rejection has turned her into a raging bitch. Having coffee with the girl she got advice from, namely Gina, she calls her friend out for her record with men, essentially calling her a raging slut. Seriously, she needs to take a step back and look at herself. Not for the slut thing because she's a virgin, but for the, why well, in fact, no, why is she slut-shaming her friend? just because things didn't work out how she wanted them to. Gina, hurt by this and probably just a bit for revenge because that's the kind of thing these characters seem to be doing, immediately goes out to prove Corey right, but in the worst possible way. She seduces Rex in the staff copy room and while they're doing the deed, the other staff are playing around on the shop floor dancing to Rex's hit song. Before gathering outside the copy room, there is a lot of anger amongst the rest of the staff, but they are doing their best to hide what's happening from Corey for fear it's going to hurt her. Or tip her over the edge, whichever comes first. 
When Rex and Gina leave the copy room, AJ pounces on Rex. I'm not sure if this is because he slept with Gina or because their actions hurt Corey. This is never made clear, as so many things are left open-ended when the film finishes. Corey calls Gina out, absolutely furious with the fact that she slept with Rex when she knew that Corey liked him. And then Gina reveals something which makes the reasons behind Corey's behaviour much clearer. She's been popping speed in order to maintain her grades, work a job and study to get into Harvard. Joe, having already asked Rex to leave without having finished his appearance, now asks Gina to finish for the day so they can get the situation at the store under control. However, once Gina leaves, Corey runs riot, throwing a fit and sweeping stuff onto the floor like a child having a temper tantrum. This is definitely the drugs affecting her mood. However, that's not an excuse. And I'm confused as to why they sent Gina home when Corey is the one who should be going home to get a consultation with a doctor and a psychiatrist. In a surprise move, Deborah, who has previously shown nothing but contempt for Gina and Corey, takes care of the younger girl, calming her down and helping her to realise that having sex with Rex, (laughs) that rhymes, would not have been the dream she thought it was. The picture she paints of the event is actually pretty depressing, but apparently not too far from the truth if her own experience is anything to go by. While Deborah is helping Corey to calm down and regain a bit of control, Joe and Lucas are talking. Lucas just doesn't seem to understand that once you reach a certain point in your life, it's not so easy to start over. Joe's future was owning Empire Records and running it as his own business, being in control. Lucas is 21 years old and has his whole life ahead of him. He can make changes, take a different path. Joe has already done that. I wonder if I was that oblivious at 21. Mark is eating a brownie and watching a video by metal band Guar. Whatever is in those brownies seriously is some strong shit because he starts to hallucinate that the band ask him to join. They listen to him play, then... After telling him that he's really good, tell him it's a shame because he now must die. Joe's about to call the police. He realises there is no getting away from it. He has to report the money as having been stolen. When Jane comes back out of nowhere and asks him out to dinner. See, I said there was chemistry. Bearing in mind, I have never seen this film before. Corey feels that she owes Deborah something for her help and starts to plan out a faux funeral as a thank you. Okay, so we know that Deborah's depressed, but a funeral? <laughs> really? What the hell is going through that girl's mind? Corey somehow manages to set up everything for the funeral, handing out invitations to the rest of the staff and putting together candles, satin pillows, and other stuff that comes from nowhere, seemingly. Does she have a Mary Poppins bag? Because I can, can I have one? While most of the staff are attending this insane funeral that ends up being a place for a lot of woe is me, poor high as a kite mark is struggling to deal with a very busy store. Gina arrives at the funeral despite having been told by Joe to go home. It seems that people ignore him quite a lot. And while Corey is admitting that she is jealous of Gina's freedom and her overall attitude, Gina admits that she is terrified her life is already over and that she's going to be forever stuck in a dead-end job like her mum when all she really wants to do is sing. 
Lucas admits that he was in the foster system after his mum decided one day she didn't want him anymore and that Joe saved him. So, essentially, he stole from the person who saved him from the foster system. Nice. What a way to pay somebody back. <laughs> Deborah tells everyone that she tried to kill herself with a pink Lady Bic razor and that it was tough going because the razor struggled to cut through skin. The imagery on that one actually disturbs me quite a lot. While all this is happening, Warren, the shoplifter with questionable taste in music, comes back. But this time he is armed with a gun that he is waving around insanely and occasionally firing. It turns out that he wants attention and a job. After all, he justifies, quite fairly to be honest, Lucas stole $9,000 from Joe and he still has a job. Realising that the whole Music Town thing is no joke, all the staff start to club together to get the money to cover what Lucas stole, but they are over $6,000 short. At that point, Mark, who has been pretty silent until now, gets an idea. He doesn't say anything to anyone else before running out to speak with the press who are reporting on the gun incident in the store. Live on air, he tells everyone that there's going to be a party at Empire Records and everyone needs to bring money to help them save the institution from being taken over. The store is packed when Mitchell shows up and at this point, Joan knows that he has to come clean and tell him the truth. And then Lucas joins in by telling Mitchell that when Music Town takes over, not only will they lose the staff, but they'll also lose a large number of the customer base that's been built up over the years. Somehow, though, the party has been a success and the patrons of Empire Records have come through. Joe gives Mitchell the money from the previous night, well, not the money, but the amount, and offers to buy the place, an offer that is very quickly accepted, as Mitchell has apparently always hated the store and will sell it to Joe cheap. On the roof, Gina's dream is becoming a reality as she gets the chance to sing with Burko, another colleague I've mentioned probably once, who plays such a minor role in the film that he's barely in it. He's played by Coyote Shivers, the singer, who in turn is the writer and performer of Sugar High, which is what Gina ends up singing. Corey is searching high and low through the crowds for AJ, realising that she does feel more for him than friendship. I gave it four months. It turns out that he has now quit his job at Empire Records so he can follow Corey to Boston where he will study art. Question, how did he get a place at art college that quickly? Did he not have to go through any sort of application process? Or had he applied on the hope that Corey was going to somehow reciprocate his feelings without him have it, having ever said anything to her before? As the credits roll, the cast dance the night away on the roof of Empire Records, celebrating their success in having saved the store from being taken over by evil corporate America. Every single one of the characters in Empire Records has been created to meet some kind of stereotype that someone in the audience can identify with. Had the film been a critical or box office success, then I would have said it worked exactly as it was meant to. That all being said, I was their age and their target audience, and I can honestly say I don't see myself in any of them. I'm not sure if this film was aiming to be some kind of 1990s breakfast club, but for me personally, if you couldn't tell, I felt it fell a little bit flat. 
for me personally, what it boiled down to was that almost every single character had more elements to dislike than like. And those that didn't barely made any sort of impact on the story at all. In fact, reflecting on it properly, the film could have been over relatively quickly. Because at the core of it, the plot started with a snooping employee who stole money intended to save the business because he believed he would be saving the business. When it comes to stereotypes, we have the studious nerd in Corey while AJ is the artistic one, Deborah is the dark depressive, Mark is the stoner, Gina is the popular girl, and Lucas is the annoying ass that thinks he has all the answers. When Lorraine suggested this film to me, it was because she liked it. I am so sorry. I really did not enjoy this film as much as I get the feeling I was supposed to. As with all the films I watch, if you've listened to any of my previous episodes, I did a lot of research before and during the watch, up to and including the budget, box office and the background. The background and everything that went with it is actually more interesting than the film itself. I'm sorry. I keep on apologising, I'm sorry I did not like this film. According to Variety, Empire Records was a soundtrack in search of a movie and I can see where they were coming from with that. There is an extensive, seriously extensive soundtrack. The original album contains just 16 tracks. However, there are a further 35 that feature in the film itself, which is a hefty number for any film. But seriously, that is a lot of records. That's 41 songs. Empire Records itself cost over $10 million to make. And with a cast that were young and pretty and exactly the age that appealed to the target audience of the film, plus a killer soundtrack for anyone who loved the 90s music, it should have been a hit. So what went wrong? Globally, Empire Records made just over $300,000. No, that is, you're not mishearing, 300000 I have to be honest, looking at the box office numbers for this film, this is the first time I've actively winced when I saw the totals. And I think probably the money men at the studio did the same thing. Sure, since it was released it has gone on to become a bit of a cult classic, but the story behind the film is probably, for me at least, more interesting. And it involves another film. There was actually a bidding war when the script for this film was put on the market. Both New Regency and Warner Brothers wanted it. And the writer, Carol Heikkinen, who also wrote This Thing Called Love and the 2000 film Centre Stage, was offered $325,000 up front and a further $200,000 if the film was made. So all in all, Heikkinen made more money than the film did. (laughs) Michael Nathanson is probably kicking himself. He's the head of New Regency, which won the bidding war. Because not long after he won Empire Records' script, he was offered the script for another 1995 teen film. Yes, he was offered the script for Clueless, and he turned it down because he already had a script he was sure was going to be a hit for the teen audience. Talk about hindsight being useless and sometimes the memory being quite painful. If you couldn't already tell, I didn't enjoy this film. I know that watching it for the first time as a 40-something, I am no longer the target audience. 
but I still need to figure out why it's not a film I chose to see back in 95, when I definitely was. Sure, Clueless was out the same year, but in the UK, Empire Records was a December release, so it was competing with films like The Santa Claus, which I know I went and saw. And it wasn't exactly a Christmas film, so it probably wasn't something that people were going, oh, I want to see a film based in the summer right now, especially in the UK. There are always questions I ask myself when I watch any film, and this one is not going to be any different. Did I enjoy it? I wanted to. But I just couldn't get past the fact that there were too many moments where absolutely nothing happened to move any kind of story forward and that makes me sad because I really wanted to like it. Will I watch it again? Nope. I know that there are a lot of people who love this film and some believe it's the film that made a generation but I am not sure who they are and I'm not sure what it made them. If it were remade would anything change? I think that given how it performed the first time around in the box office This would be a really good candidate for an update and a remake. However, the fact that it did bomb in the cinema is a reason why I feel studios would be really cautious when it came to making any kind of financial commitment. So that's me on Empire Records. I hope you don't hate me for not liking it. (laughs) Love comic books. Love the universes that they have created. Check out this podcast an equal opportunity marvel and dc show if you're into all things comics you have to check out take a knee for marvel versus dc your go-to podcast for comic and superhero discussion debates polls and more tune in as regular scott and ozzy killmonger chat about your favorite comic topics and you never know who may show up for an open mic or what will be next on their favorite one gotta go take a knee for marvel versus dc every Sunday, powered by the Defy Light Podcast Network. So that's Take a Knee for Marvel vs. DC. Find it where you can find all good podcasts after you've finished listening to this episode. Okay, I lied when I said that by the time Just Friends was released... I would have seen the fifth episode of The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. For some reason, probably absolutely nothing at all to do with the fact that I've recorded two episodes this week and been planning for some incredible changes to come in season two. I haven't yet had a chance to watch. In fact, when it got to Monday evening and I still hadn't watched, I realised that I could hold out until Saturday and watch the penultimate and final episodes together. Just how I like it. By that point, I will want something comforting as I am actually having my second COVID jab on Saturday morning. So great having the jab, not looking forward to it because apparently the side effects are worse the second time round, according to those who had it. Anyway, as that has now been determined and I will have nearly two hours of Bucky and Sam to look forward to this weekend, what else is on the playlist? This year, we've been treated to an additional two episodes of The Broken Wood Mysteries. So there's 90 minutes of that to look forward to for two more weeks. And then tomorrow, being Friday, the whole of a new YA series is launching on Netflix by the name of Shadow and Bone. I haven't read the books, and until they started talking about this show, I hadn't even heard of them. But that's something else I am going to be watching over the weekend. 
In the last episode, I talked about how I wasn't sure what I was going to read and that I also had three unfinished books on the go. Well, news, I've managed to finish one of them. So without spoilers, I am going to talk about The Girl's Guide to the Apocalypse by John Murray McKay. A few weeks ago, as backstory, I went on Facebook where I belong to a couple of very large and incredibly active book groups and asked for some new book suggestions that fit a specific genre. In this instance, that genre was fantasy, as I was going by the results of my survey, in which fantasy came third. A few books were suggested, and out of them all, this one appealed, because I liked the bump on the back, and the title seemed sort of ironic. So when the author suggested it, and I said I would like to read it, he was kind enough to send me a copy to review, and despite having received a free copy I am going to give a 100% honest review because I don't think lying benefits anybody. I loved the concept of the book, a girl who is destined to support the fight against the predetermined apocalypse, the newest in a long line of engineers who work with paladins, the warriors who fight while the engineers create the weapons they use. At this point I always ask myself, so what now? Now I talk about the book without giving away any of the plot, because while I will give a complete summary of a film without any issue, unless it's a brand new one, I will not give spoilers for a book that can be read at any time. We'll sometimes have a very small release window, and if reading a lot has taught me anything, it's that you won't read a book that has been spoiled for you, while you will likely go and see a film you know the ending to, because you like the actors or the story, or have been watching the series for years. One of the things I always do when reading a new book, partly so that I'm forearmed if there is anything in there that could hit just a little bit too close to home for me. I'm not easily triggered by much, but there are certain things that can, at certain times, hit me harder. And that is I check out the reviews that already exist. The first one on both Amazon and Goodreads is less than favourable. But as I moved down the list, it seems to get much better, so I feel more confident that I picked a good book to read and review for this week. So what exactly is the book about? Michaela Jones was just an ordinary Midwestern teen trying to survive the insane asylum she called a high school and make it to college in one piece. That was until she was tasked with fulfilling her father's dying wish with a seemingly impossible mission. Take your place on the wall and make a stand against death and his entire legion of the damned. Now, Michaela, Naz, and a demented book-bodyguard must save the world from utter chaos and drive the darkness back. Armed only with the mind of an engineer and the heart of a warrior, they must construct every conceivable trap they can think of to keep the night's monsters at bay. They will have to dig their heels in and experience their worst fears while remaining undaunted but united. Two girls and a manual against death and every horrific nightmare creature of the underworld. Good odds for any woman. So let's start with the positives, and there were a few of them. I enjoyed the story. It moved forward very quickly and a lot happened. One of the biggest issues I saw other reviews faced was the changing perspective of the narrators. But for some reason, this really didn't bother me. I was easily able to determine whose voice I was listening to in my head as I read the words. I liked the world that had been created. It was quite familiar to me. A battleground place 
between good and evil, sort of like Sunnydale. But while Buffy was the slayer of vampires and demons, Michaela was the creator. She was the backup, but she was also the main character. And that brings me to the characters. Michaela was well-rounded. I understood her motivation and her feelings, and I could even understand some of her pain. Though I did find it so strange that she was very quickly accepting of a chicken-eating book that had mannerisms more familiar in a dog. And of course, the monsters suddenly appearing. The biggest sinkhole in the story for me was the way that the two friends, Naz and Michaela, spoke. I was reminded very quickly of the thing I hated most about Easy A. And if you've listened to that, you'll know one of the things I really disliked. The ease with which we Anon threw around the word bitch. I keep on having to ask myself, is this how teenage girls actually talk to each other? Do they constantly refer to their friends as bitch? Naz is constantly calling Michaela bitch. They became friends very quickly and immediately Naz, who has a strict Muslim upbringing, is calling Michaela bitch, sweetie and darling. It's almost as though she's a character influenced by 1920s films and someone from the Housewives franchise. Yes, both the female leads were strong, but some things that they did just blew my mind. Naz knocks out a social worker and the girls tie him up and threaten him. One of the teachers at school has an almost inappropriate but not sexual relationship with his students. And Michaela is an anachronism, a teenager who knows who Ennio Morricone is. I'm not saying here that some teenagers won't know, but it's a fact that's thrown around pretty quickly in her head and then dismissed. Overall, this wasn't a bad book. In fact, it was a fun first read, but I did have to suspend more than the usual disbelief. Normally with a fantasy book, at least some of the behaviours are familiar. And in this, the teenage girls who had previously been living in a world where they were unaware of any weirdness, accept it without even a shake of their heads. Also, I do wish that there was a little more real friendship rather than a surface bitch this and bitch that. I'm not sure if it's my age and the fact that I really don't like being called a bitch. In fact, it's one of the worst insults for me and I don't know why. Or if it's just that as a woman, I feel it's an insult rather than a term of endearment. I was thinking for quite a while about the topic for this week. And then after a conversation and a little check of my bank balance, which I do automatically anyway, I knew I had hit upon the perfect one. Many people, especially those who have never experienced depression or mental health issues, will not be aware that one of the signs that there is a problem is actually uncontrollable spending issues. Yeah, I know, it sounds random, right? For years, and I mean years, I denied that I had a problem with spending, even as I was racking up catalogue debt, store card debt, credit card debt, and took out three loans to travel. The fact that it never clicked with me that the desire to travel and spend money was a problem is in itself a problem. I guess it all started on my 21st birthday or just before. I had a full-time job working within the NHS, not as a nurse or medical specialist of any sort. And as I had been there for a while, I had finally earned a positive credit rating. I'd also decided that as a treat to myself, I was going to go and see Les Mis in London and stay the night in a hotel. 
So I purchased a package deal. It was a pinch at just over £100. But stupid and naive me thought, ooh, I'll get a nice room for this. Unfortunately, when I arrived with my freshly minted credit card limit of £1,000, who the hell thought that was a good idea at the bank should have been fired? I was so disappointed. The room was tiny with a single bed, smaller than the room I paid rent for back home. Instead of just saying to myself, well, it's okay, you're hardly going to be here, this is London, you'll be out for a meal, and then you'll be going home tomorrow afternoon, I picked up my tiny suitcase, headed down to the main check-in desk, and booked a car. So, did I just head to the next rung up the ladder? Of course I didn't. I was Ray. Have big limit on credit card, we'll spend it, even if I can't pay it back next month. I checked into the Ritz. Yes, the Ritz. I had afternoon tea, I had a limo to and from the theatre, I had room service, and by the end of my second day in London, I also had a full credit card. (laughs) Zero limit left. I spent £1,000 in less than 24 hours. This pattern of spending continued for years, at least until it caught up with me when I had my breakdown at 30 and my therapist and psychiatrist both pointed out to me that I was on a very destructive path. Now I have my spending relatively under control, but only because my credit score is so awful it makes greases look relatively okay. I occasionally will go overboard, like I did at the start of lockdown when I purchased a few hundred pounds worth in value, not weight, of wool and spent a lot on face cream, a new mic for podcasting, doesn't the audio sound so much better, a new office chair, a second desk and at least £350 worth of new books. But none of that, I'm really, really pleased and proud to say, was on credit. The thing is, for all that I am still paying it back, and I really am, I can't regret the memories that I created while totaling it up. I travelled through many states in the US, I went to Paris, I had trips to London, I went to Canada. I wouldn't have been able to do all of that without my spending issues. Well, I possibly would, but I wouldn't have stayed in the Ritz or the Universal Sheraton, both of which are really amazing hotels, by the way. Now, I have to be much more careful. I don't borrow, I can't lend, and that means that everything I have now I own outright. Well, apart from the flat that I rent. It's been a hard lesson, but it's been one that I really needed to learn. At the time, I didn't realise it was essentially me trying to fill a hole that I didn't even know existed. And being completely honest, it didn't do a very good job or I wouldn't have had to continue doing it over and over again. Now, I'm not saying that everyone who has a spending issue has a mental health problem or suffers from depression. But if you do see someone who is spending a lot of money on things that they don't really want or need and they don't have loads of money, ask if they're okay. Don't be pushy. They might not be aware that there's an issue or there might not be anything wrong at all. It's just worth knowing that it is a sign many people ignore because it seems so innocuous. Don't forget that there are just two more episodes left. Yep, two after this one until season one ends. And the next one features someone who starred in one of my favourite 80s dance films and a man who has a joker of a smile. So that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed the listen. I release a new one every week. So if you like what you hear, 
why not share it with your friends and family and post a review on one of the many podcatchers out there like iTunes or Podchaser. You can follow me over on Twitter at need underscore three underscore mugs or on Instagram where I'm trying to be a little bit better at posting at not before coffee podcast. Well, I need another cup of coffee as I definitely haven't had enough. So I'm going to go and put the kettle on. Until next time, this is me saying farewell.